0: So take your bibles Matthew chapter 21. While you're turning there, I'll take you back in time a little bit to the last couple of hurricanes that have run through here. This is now I understand the height of hurricane season, is that right? Late August into September. Hello. <laughs> okay. Just checking. I thought maybe you might just be painted out there or something. Um, So I was at a uh, dinner with some church members not too long ago when we were talking about some of the aftermath of the last couple of hurricanes that came through here uh, with specific emphasis on the lack of power and what that created in this area. Y'all remember that? My suspicion is, because I wasn't here yet, so... I've been praying that I'd never have to go through that, just to be honest with you. But uh, I, I, I was listening to them and I was taken with the level of change in life that occurred when there was no power here. Uh, first of all, one of the comments that sticks with me was that it was darker than you can even imagine it being at night. Now, I understand uh, that, and I know that we have some folks that work for this particular company, so I want to be careful that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but I understand that Entergy has a phone app that will let you know when the power is out at your house, right? Now, let me just ask you, don't you already know when the power is out at your house? (laughs) I got the app because I want to know when it's going to come back on. I don't want to know that it's out, although... That actually is my point in all of this. Don't you know when there's power missing in your life? I was watching some of the slide stuff. By the way, nice job musicians, very nice job. Uh, But I was watching some of the slides going on in that one song and looking at some of those life situations that were depicted there for us. And how regularly we get into situations in life and it seems like our power is gone. If you're not currently in a season like that where life has dished out for you more than what your personal power can handle, then I would say buckle up because it's sure to come. That's just kind of the nature of living. But it's good to know that there is power available. One of the hardest things for me as a pastor is to watch Christian people who really are trying to live for God and follow God, to go through difficult times in their lives and to seemingly run out of power. Matthew chapter 21 takes us to a place as we finish our series on the parables of Jesus as we've been working through them, or some of them at least this summer. It takes us to a fitting conclusion, I think, Uh, and and really kind of the title of this, as you have seen, I'm I'm guessing, is Don't Be Dumb. Now, I kind of got scolded, not really scolded, but I had a grandmother catch me early in the week and say, you know what, my grandchildren are not supposed to say dumb, Um, and I chose the title anyway, but um, because I'm not calling anybody dumb, I'm saying don't be dumb. And mostly I'm talking to myself in that. It takes me back to where that phrase originated for me. One of my professors, Dr. Levi Price, leaned across the lectern to us four or five ministers who were in his class, and his parting words to us was, were, Guys, when it comes to what you do in church work, don't be dumb. I'd like to push that message out for all of us uh, when it comes to living the Christian life and living life in a Christian context. The message of the parable, actually this is one of those parables with three main characters in it, or primary characters I should say, and each one of them carries its own lesson, but the main lesson that I want to push forward from this parable today is this, true discipleship, Produces changed lives. but if you okay, I'll see how I'll say this nicely, right? But if you choose to be dumb, then there's a good chance that you're going to get paralyzed in your spiritual development. Let's see where we get that and what we have with it. Let's set the scene. By the way, we're in Matthew 21. We're going to start uh, with the parable of the two sons, and that will begin in verse 28. And we'll get to that in just a second. But let me set the, ta- uh, the table for us here on what's going on because the context of here, uh, this one is very critical for us as it has been for all of these parables. This now occurs in the final week of Jesus' life before he is crucified. If we were to go back in the chapter 21 and verse 1, we would find the triumphal entry and that part of our annual celebration around Easter time. We always go back and start with Palm Sunday and all of that kind of stuff. And so in chapter 21, we find ourselves in that week. And I want to kind of try to shock us out of our normal level of thinking when it comes to Easter time because uh, we always push towards Easter as we should and the great celebration that it is as we should. But I want us, as we begin to look into this parable, I want us to feel the anxiety and the pressure as it builds in that final week with Jesus. The great entry that we find the first part of the chapter gives way to a couple of other things. Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple And then after that, we find this negative reaction of the religious leaders as they respond to the people who are heaping praise upon Jesus for what he teaches and what he's been doing in these miracles. And we find this wedge that has been driven between Jesus and the religious leaders as it begins to just push deeper and deeper. Jesus just is like he just steps on the accelerator and goes headlong into that opposition His rhetoric heats up. His accusations heap up. Before it's all said and done, that division between Jesus and those religious leaders that has been building all through the Gospel of Matthew will finally culminate with Jesus hanging on a cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem. But Before they get to the cross, Jesus just hammers down on them. And so after their negative reactions in verses 15 and 16, we pick up in verse 19 where Jesus curses the fig tree, which becomes a symbol of what he is doing. And there, well, it's an interesting study. You can go do that on your own. I'll just leave it at that for now. And then in verse 23, we pick up to get ready for the parable. And here's what we find. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. It says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This, we we should not miss this. This is now the direct challenge on him. To this point, they've had the snide comments, they've had the grumbling among themselves in the back, questioning all that Jesus has done, but now they come to him in a very public way, and it is man on man, we're going to get to the bottom of this. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? The implication of their words are, we're in charge here, you're not with us, so who do you think you are? Jesus' response to that is very interesting. First of all, I love the way that Jesus responds to them because he doesn't give them the direct answer. In other words, in Rotramelis, he changes the rules of the engagement. And so he turns to them with a question. I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, that is John the Baptist. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And Jesus, with that question, places them solidly on the horns of a dilemma because they have no good answer because of their preconceived ideas about John and about Jesus. And as they discussed it, it says, among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. In other words, you can't call them stupid because they're at least smart enough to know they don't have a good answer. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I read that section of this because I want it to get fully ingrained in our thinking. This has become the showdown And they push Jesus to where they think they have him painted into a corner and he turns the tables on them and walks away from it. Well, he doesn't quite walk away just yet, but he turns the tables on them in such a way that he is no longer on the defense and now we find him go solidly on the offense with them. And what follows now are three parables escalating in their intensity and their accusations. We've talked a lot about slant and how Jesus used these parables to come around the side with truth, to give it truth in such a way that they might not get it at first, but as they walk away and think about it, then it kind of assaults them from the side. Hey, maybe he, maybe he was talking about me. Jesus doesn't leave it to slant now. There is slant in this, but he says it for them. Here's the parable, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Those of you who are dads, if your child said to you, I will not, do you think that child would live to see tomorrow? I would at least hope that your child would wonder if they would live to see tomorrow if they answered you that way. But he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And the father went to the other son and said the same. And the other son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. I think most of us have had that son. Which of the two did the will of his father? There's the parable. And so Jesus now puts it, into the lap of these detractors, these who are opposed to him. So which of the two did the will of the father? The one who said, I'm not going to do it, but decided that he should, and he did. Or the one who said, sure, I'll do it, dad. I'll get to it. And he never did get to it. And their answer, we pick it up now, in verse 31, the latter part, they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, now here's where he gives them slant that's actually straight between the eyes. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Here's why that's between the eyes. They clearly get the fact that Jesus is on the attack with them. The reason it's slant though is because nobody would have dreamed that the truth that Jesus states there could possibly be a truth. Here are these Tax, excuse me. here are these religious leaders, these guys who represent the cream of the crop in religious life at that time. They're the ones who everybody's supposed to look to. They're the example. They're the ones who tell us how we're supposed to live. They're the ones who have been to school. They're, in our uh, way of saying it, they're the pastors and the seminary professors, and they're the guys who have it all figured out in religion. Clearly, they would be the ones who would be closest to getting into the kingdom of God. But Jesus turns hard on them and says not that they're the closest, not that they're the ones to get in first, but rather that the least likely set of the population was much closer to the kingdom of God than they were. That's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, probably, because we recognize that that's a first century kind of a thing. Let's turn that and put it in our day. Who might Jesus look at and say, those people are closer to the kingdom of God than all of you pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers and those of you who have been through all of the levels of Beth Moore and all the other great teachers. We might in our day expect Jesus to say those see, how, how much trouble do I want to get in here this morning? You see what I mean? Now, you can fill in the blank about who those people are that we would least expect to see in the kingdom of God, but whoever you think are least expected, that's who goes in the blank. Jesus comes slant with them even though he tells them the slant. And it is a ground-rattling statement that he gives them. No wonder they choose to kill him. Verse 31 provides a point of focus for us, I think. As Jesus lays out for us The answer here, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Hear me very carefully to say Jesus doesn't say to them, you can't get in or you won't get in. He just says in such a way that we get it that there is this other group, the least likely people who are more attuned to kingdom truth and therefore closer to the kingdom of God. Now, that may not settle too well with us yet. Maybe we don't have enough information on the table for us to get there. So let's go ahead and keep reading because we find in verse 32 now some of the explanation. We see that Jesus is, in fact, talking to those religious leaders. Verse 32, for John came to you. Now we're back to John the Baptist, and now we're back to why I read that section before we got to this parable. For John came to you, that is these religious leaders, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. In other words, you were confronted with kingdom truth and you did not believe. But on the other hand, the contrast now, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds And believe him. So, the whole parable, at least the point that I want to elevate this morning for our consideration, is that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, when they were confronted with the reality of the message of John the Baptist, do you remember what his message was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John would say to them, Repent not just with your mouth and not just with the way you're thinking, but repent with the way you're living your life. According to Jesus, the prostitutes and the tax collectors got it and responded accordingly. But not the religious leaders. He uses a term here in verse 32 that is the term we would call repent. It is to change one's belief and behavior. You had a chance, you saw the truth, and it did not make a difference, to which Dr. Levi Price would say, don't be dumb. It is idiocy. It's just dumb to be confronted with the truth of God and to ignore it. The Talmud, which is, uh, I'll just say it this way, it's Jewish writings tied to the law in a variety of ways. Here's one of the things we find in the Talmud. Righteous men promise a little but produce a lot, whereas the wicked promise much and do not perform even little. Craig Blomberg says it better in the current vernacular for us, I think. He says, first, for us there must be an allegiance to Jesus. And then there must be some indication of transformed living. So there's the parable. These two sons were given specific instructions from their father. One said no, had a change of heart, and did what his father said. The other said yes, and had no change of heart. I guess he did have a change of heart. He decided he wasn't going to do it. What does that tell us? How does that fit our lives? Here's a basic truth that drives this entire thing, I think, and that is that true discipleship produces changed lives. I want to talk around that a little bit, and in the talking around it in the few minutes that I have left, I want to try to hand us some things to take out of here today so that we cannot be the religious leaders who Jesus had to take to task over the way they responded to him. See, I I operate under this basic awareness, or maybe it's an observation. It certainly is a conviction that I have, and that is that we have trained generations of Christian people who have bought into an easy believism that our churches have pushed out, And because of that, we have churches that are full of people who say they believe Christ is the Savior, but their lives are being lived without power. It's as if there is this dumbing down of the Christian life that says if you just walk the aisles, if you just say this prayer, if you'll just say the right things when we ask you these questions, and okay, we'll make it a little harder for you. We're going to make you jump in the tub and get wet. But if you'll just do those things, then you can join the club. Now We don't call it a club. We call it Church. But here's my, my the, what goes with that is if all we are selling is club membership, then we're training people to live without power. And we're teaching them to be dumb. A friend of mine, actually it was my brother-in-law, but he was a lifelong friend before that, was with a group of people and they went to Brazil on a mission trip. And part of that mission trip took them to a hydroelectric plant that was built alongside this dam uh, and and alongside the walls of this canyon that had once been part of the river that had been dammed up, people who had no power in their lives, no economic power no social power, no practical power in their lives. They just went out into this canyon area and they began to throw up cardboard houses because that's the only place they could find shelter from the elements of life. My friend, brother-in-law, said that he went into one of those homes while they were out there and home is stretching it. It was literally cardboard. And he said the, the, the practical reality of that was the worst possible living conditions that you could imagine. No electrical power, no running water, nothing like that. And you can imagine in a town of cardboard walls what an open flame could do. And he said the irony of what I saw was amazing that here's this family living in a cardboard lean-to with no power and yet running along the canyon wall that was the wall of their house was a conduit full of electrical cables with more electricity than that family could ever use in a lifetime. It was just untapped. I would submit to you that our churches are full of people living the Christian life exactly that way. Scripture in another place would say having a form of godliness but denying its power. Let me ask you, as I push this parable into your lap, how is your life being transformed by Jesus? Now I'm back to that easy believism problem. Because I really do think that for many years, as Baptist at least, that's what I've been, so that's what I know. And I'm not really hacking on us. I'm just trying to help us understand some of maybe where we've gone wrong. But we, we've pushed this easy believism that becoming a Christian is as simple as saying the right things. And we, we might probe just a little bit to make sure you understand what we're talking about. But, but you know, Jesus said to his disciples especially those who said, I believe, and yet he knew they didn't believe, he made it hard for them to follow him. For his disciples that we call the disciples, those 12 guys, there was a bunch of other people who followed him around, but those guys, he went to them in very specific ways and said, hey, come with me. And it necessitated a change of life for them just like that. Now here's how that plays out for us in our way of living, most of us in this room, I'm guessing, can go back to a time where we had that change of heart. Okay, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that he died for me. I believe there's no other hope for salvation for me except through him. I believe and I trust that. By the way, if you haven't come to that point, that's where life begins. And I would invite you to life through Jesus Christ. But we took people from that moment and stuck them in a chair in a church or maybe even gave them a job in a church and never taught them, and maybe the them now is a you, never taught them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, remember, True discipleship produces changed lives. In other words, the spirit of this parable is that it is not enough to say, I believe, without a change in lifestyle. How you follow through matters. We have terms that we use for people. Many of you are teachers, educators. And one of the things that I suspect that they taught you as you were getting your certifications was some kind of developmental psychology. So that you can teach well with whatever age level and grade level you're teaching, you need to understand what those kids are capable of taking at that time. You don't want to teach over their head. You don't want to teach under them. You want to hit them right in the heart. But that changes as a kid grows. If it's done right and if a kid develops right, there is this sliding scale of what is normal. Why is that not true in our churches? I, we have a grandson. Have I told you that? I have a new grandson. Uh, our grandson is just over a month old now. He was born two months premature. Declan probably goes home tomorrow or the next day. He's been in the neonatal intensive care unit at a hospital in the Woodlands for a month now. And we've had the opportunity to see our grandson grow from when he was not done yet, but yet he came out of the oven, to now he's still a month away from where he's supposed to be. But in the month's time that we've watched him, we've watched him grow two chins instead of one. It's amazing how good that is when they're premature babies as opposed to when they're 40 years old and you get extra chins. This normal growth and development that we've seen in our grandson, when we first went over there, his leg was about as big around as my thumb. He was purple. I thought to myself, that's the ugly... No, I didn't say that, really. He doesn't look right. He's a weird color. But over the month that he's been around, he's gradually become more human-like instead of insect-like. You know what we call that? Normal growth. So how is it with you? These, These religious leaders had been sparring with Jesus for three years, and they still were at the same point. Actually, they were not at the same point. They had gone backwards. They're ready to Kill him now. They're going to kill him before it's over with. After three and a half years, you would have thought that they would have grown some. Well, his disciples sort of did. Let's take it off of them and let's put it right back on us. How are you doing? How different are you today than you were as a Christian three and a half years ago? Or three and a half months ago? So let me give you a couple of really quick, and I know that we're just almost done here, so let me give you a couple of suggestions. We're on the verge of a new school year, (laughs) and I don't have to go. Yes. Whether you're a teacher or a student, no matter what your age is, let me give you a few suggestions as you go into a new year. Maybe you're beyond that, you're still at a job, soccer season, and football season, all those things are happening and you begin to rub shoulders with people that maybe you weren't before it's an opportunity for a new beginning next week I'm going to start a whole new series in preaching but let's close this one off this way to take the whole thing on the parables and let's pull it down to three basic things that I would say to you if you want to grow in your Christian experience you don't want to be these religious leaders who ultimately are condemned by Jesus because they just wouldn't grow Here's the first one. This year, make a commitment to be with Jesus. That's not the same thing as going to church. These disciples of Jesus, as I've said already today, were confronted with a charge. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is an imperative. Come with me and it's a promise. I'm going to make you different. So spend time with Jesus. Because if you will follow him, there's the most appropriate place for hashtag life change ahead. He will fundamentally change your life if you'll be with him. But one of the ways that we dumb down our Christianity is we refuse to prioritize personal time with him. And so we opt instead for an hour in church on Sunday and maybe a radio program here or a podcast there or some of those things. Spend time with him. Whatever that means and whatever that takes. A great statement from one of our church members this week. Wednesday night study we're talking about some of these and we were we won't be doing that anymore but um, this person said you know it's easy if, if, if I don't do my time with the Lord first thing in the morning before everybody else gets up then I know that I'm not going to get to it well you know what first of all I love the insight of that and the commitment that that showed but let me just say to you that's true for all of us and if that means you have to get up 30 minutes earlier I suspect that God's big enough to be able to give you enough rest To make up for that 30 minutes. Spend time. Be with Jesus. Here's the second one. Look like Jesus. And I'm not talking about the, you know, don't don't put on a bunch of robes and sandals and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Look like Jesus looked. Look out. Look at like Jesus looked out and looked at. What do you see? When you look around you, you're going to go, you teenagers going to go to classes and you've been off through the summer, maybe off some, some of you have been off a long time, but that's another story. Um, you're going to go and you're going to see people who are living without power in their lives. You're going to see people that are hurting, desperately hurting. And if you just play along like everybody else in the world does, then you might even jump on and play pile-on with them and just beat them further into the dirt. All of us, you work with people like that, you go to school with people like that, you have people in your families like that, look at people and see them with compassion like Jesus did. If his disciples hadn't learned that from him, the whole Christian enterprise would have been done when he was crucified. But he taught them to love people. But our churches, I, you know, I, it pains me to say this, but we seem to prefer, in 21st century American Christianity, we seem to prefer the uh, aggressive attack on people that are hurting. You know, we think that there are challenges and threats to our lifestyle and our belief system, and that may be true at some level. But if they're, hear me now, if they're living out, whoever they happens to be in that sin of choice that you like to pile on the most about, if they're living outside of the kingdom of God, they're hurting. They need Jesus. And when we draw lines and just square off against them, we condemn them. Jesus Hear hear this. This is the follow part. It goes hard on the heels of that one. Jesus regularly entered areas where pain and disillusionment were winning the day in the lives of people. He dealt with prostitutes and tax collectors, the outcasts of the religiosity of his day. And he jumped at the chance to have compassion on those people. Here's a news flash for us. He still does that. Those times, I'll I'm, I'm, just be really selfish and tell you, I'm really grateful that our time in the neonatal intensive care unit of the hospital in the Woodlands is drawing to a close. I would be fine if I never had to go back in there. You know why? That is a place of deep pain. Some of you have had children who were premature and you understand the, the struggle for life that happens inside those walls every day, every moment of every day. And I watched as young parents would file in there for just a few moments with their very ill babies. And it broke my heart. But you know, we, we discovered that the compassion that Jesus offers in life resides in some nurses Lauren told me about some of her discussions with some of those nurses who are believers. Jesus is making a difference in their lives, And by their own admission, they regularly would go to the bedsides actually the what is that, an incubator side, of those critically ill babies, and pray for them. You may not be stationed at a hospital, but you're surrounded by people who need godly compassion and need you to be that nurse. Jesus would go to those places, and he would take you with him, and he would give you power to be effective for him. So don't be dumb. Don't live the Christian life as if there is no power. But that may mean that you need to do a little soul searching to figure out where you are with Jesus. Have you bought into and stayed with an easy believism? I have my fire insurance. I know enough to keep me out of hell. And I'll just tread water with my life until I'm done. Or... Would you say to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go and watch your work? Let's pray. So how is it with you? If you had to be one of the two brothers, would you be the one who said, I really do need to do this, even though I said no? My belief is more than just head stuff. It is all the way into my feet. Father, we ask you to help us to be very honest right now. If we've bought into a Christianity that is more about a head knowledge and less about compassionate involvement with people because of a deep, growing relationship with the Master. Show us and give us the courage to repent. Help us to get this right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.